This is AgriFutures On Air, brought to you by AgriFutures Australia, driving innovation in Australian agriculture. Every now and then, we all come across someone out there who you can't help hoping succeeds. They tick all the boxes, keen to get ahead, adventurous, willing to take some risks, full of self-confidence, but also smart and likeable. Mick Jacoby is that bloke, a young fellow who seems to have followed both his heart and his head. You'll find him now forging a future in farming in the Northern Territory, looking forward to planting his first industrial hemp crop. Industrial hemp is an emerging industry in Australia and AgriFutures Australia is sponsoring the writing of an industry research, development and extension plan that's due for completion in 2022. Now currently Mick leases land near Darwin and at Douglas Daly, which is about 150k south of the capital. This year he's growing cowpea, grain sorghum and hay crops. And he also has a contract farming business, all up over about 1,300 hectares. And his next big challenge, of course, is getting that hemp crop into the ground. Like many people working in the top end, Mick's family roots are a long way from the Northern Territory. And he's got a great story to tell. So let's let him tell it. So I was born in Sydney and I lived there with my family till I was about 15. Mum and Dad bought a few hundred acres between Bathurst and Lithgow, decided to make a tree change. So we moved out there, which was awesome for me. It was sort of a dream come true. Just had room for motorbikes and dogs could run around and you know, plenty of space for boys to do what boys do. I did grade 11 and 12 in Bathurst and then I did an apprenticeship as a heavy diesel mechanic. And then when I finished my apprenticeship, I packed up and went to Kununurra. I spent a year in Kununurra and then I went for a fly in a helicopter and I thought this is all right. So I went mining for a couple of years and saved some money and got a helicopter license. Moved over to Queensland to chase the coal mining. And then I, I went to Western Australia for a short stint and then came over to the Northern Territory and started flying commercially here. Then after about, what was it, probably seven years or so, along came a wife and kids and I thought, well, it must be time to settle down a bit. So actually what I was doing, I was caretaking a property and there was a hay paddock there. And I said, well, can I lease that hay paddock off you? And the guy said, yeah, no problem. So I thought, well, next thing I need some equipment. So I found a tractor in a dump at Spring Creek Station. So I pulled that out of the dump and resurrected it. And then there was a baler at another property in the dump. So I pulled that out of the dump and resurrected that. And I bought a mower and a rake and started making hay and sort of just gone from there. Gone from there. A diesel mechanic apprenticeship turned out well for you, didn't it? Yeah, it has. I actually probably couldn't do all the things I'd done if I didn't have that background. It's a very well-paid profession for starters, so it's enabled me to put some money together at times when I've needed to using my trade, and it's been an exceptionally good background to have with farming. Now, Mick, you undersold yourself a little bit there when you said you got a helicopter licence. You were actually mustering cattle, weren't you? Yeah, it was a seasonal thing. So your normal year would be about Easter long weekend. Was You'd brace yourself for the Easter long weekend because once that was over, that was full swing mustering. You had your first round, 
then you might get a bit of a lull between first and second round. And that sort of takes you up to about September, then it gets a bit hot and the feed's dropping off. The mustering program slows down from that point and then that's when the fires start. Then you tackle the firefighting around Darwin and Catherine regions, there's helicopters based there. And then it starts raining and then the mustering on the floodplain starts and the spraying of weeds starts. Christmas day off and then rolls around until Easter again. Okay, it's a a big job, a year-round job I didn't realise. Which brings me, I suppose, to the next point, and this is something that I've picked up from talking to people up at the top end over the last few weeks. The thing that really strikes me is that it really is a land of opportunity. Do you agree with that? Do you see opportunity almost on every corner? Oh, yeah, that's everywhere. And I, there's a lot of opportunity in the Northern Territory. I think there's opportunity everywhere. I talk to a lot of people and they sort of say how much opportunity is up here and they lament the fact there's none wherever they are that's not the Northern Territory. And I disagree with that. There might be more opportunity here. I guess it depends which opportunity you're looking for. But I think in life it's about creating opportunity you don't just sort of sit at home and wait for the opportunity to present itself it's not going to happen but yeah there's definitely a lot of opportunity up here yeah that's a that's a very wise response let's get on to what you're doing particularly with industrial hemp because you've been granted the first license the very first license to grow industrial hemp in the northern territory have you put your first crop into the ground and, and how much are you growing no i haven't planted a hemp crop yet So I got the licence. The way it actually came about, a guy from Queensland contacted me and said, you should think about growing hemp. And I said, I think I'll just like a day off. I think I'll stick with what I've got going on now. I don't need any more on my plate. Anyway, we continued to correspond and eventually I thought, look, I'll just... Because the hemp licences had been open to apply for for probably more than six months, I think, before I even applied for mine. I didn't see it as being something that I really needed to pursue at the time. And I thought, look, I'll get one of these hemp licenses and just I'll see what happens. And then I started researching hemp more and more. And it's an amazing plant. And what you can't do with it isn't worth doing, I don't think. But I've certainly come across lots of challenges, hence the reason I haven't actually planted anything yet. And the main challenges I've come across so far, varieties. We need to pin down the varieties that are suitable for us in our climate and from my research most of the hemp in the world at the moment the industrial sort of large-scale western farming system type hemp is produced in primarily Canada. France gets a mention in the hemp game quite a bit and then also the Ukraine anywhere around that those Baltic states there. All very cool climates. Are there varieties out there for hotter environments? Absolutely. That's why Tasmania's sort of leading the charge with the hemp game. Those guys down there are really kicking some goals. I was just talking to Andy Lucas the other day from the Tasmanian Hemp Association. They've actually kick-started a business where what they're doing now is they're harvesting the grain off the hemp and they're now going through and cutting the, the stubble and they're baling it and they're processing that fibre now for building materials. Those guys really are are kicking some goals and I'd probably attribute that to two things. They've got some really passionate growers down there that have been doing it for quite a long time and also their climate is really well suited to the varieties that are sort of tried and tested and really the varieties, that's one thing, but one of the other major points there 
is it's the knowledge. So they can talk to some guys in the Ukraine or Canada or somewhere like that. But the difference between growing something in Canada or the Ukraine and the Northern Territory, you know, a it's a, a vastly different situation. But having said that, hemp also grows all over Asia and there's some varieties come out of Asia that are a lot more suited to our climate. So I've been talking to David McNeil from the research farm in Kununurra and he's been doing a lot of work in Kununurra. And we had a really interesting chat and he's found a lot of the things that I've found as far as challenges. Is the variety selection the biggest challenge you've got for growing in a hotter environment or are there other challenges as well? So there's two. And look, with the variety challenge, that's really just a matter of time. But really the other major challenge is the marketing and selling of the product. Have you given any thought yourself to the marketing side of things? Because you are a fair way away from everything up there. Yeah. So what I sort of, again, as I said, I'm going to call this a journey. I know it sounds pretty corny, but most mornings, it's my normal routine. I sort of get up at four or half past four and if I'm working around town, I'll sit on my laptop for a couple of hours till my wife and kids wake up. And if we're in the bush, I'll just get into it. But if I've got phone service and I'm waiting for staff to arrive or my family to wake up, I'll just jump on the internet and sort of pursue my agricultural knowledge gaining, yeah. trying to educate myself a little. And what I actually set out originally when I sort of first started looking at hemp, I thought, the best thing to do would be fiber panels, so building panels, I mean, like a chipboard type panel. And there's guys that have got the technology to make these chipboard panels. The machinery actually exists already. And I thought, beauty, well, well, I'll just grow some hemp and we'll make chipboard panels. But then, oh, hang on, we need to get building certification so that it can be sold to the mainstream building game. You know, it has, to, it has to have a fire rating, it has to have a structural rating, and it has to have a pest rating, and all these different things. And you know, everything can be done and a lot of it already exists, but then there's a multi-million dollar gap between where we are now and actually having something that you can take to market. So I thought chipboard panels and also paper. From what I can see, hemp makes really, really good paper. It's really high in cellulose, which is the fibre they make out of paper. And I thought that's another great opportunity. But again, there is a gap in the technology market there to make that happen and it'll only be a matter of time till someone picks it up and runs with it. Mick, it sounds like you are not satisfied to just simply, you know, pack it up into bales and wave goodbye to it at the farm gate. You're sounding like you want a value add. Is that the case? Yeah, what it comes down to is it's one plant, but there's about half a dozen avenues of growing it. So there's the guys that are doing the medicinal stuff, the CBD oil, but with the industrial hemp, it's really, in my opinion, it's going to be a high volume, low cost product. And the conclusion I've come to now is the best avenue for us to pursue to get this off the ground is actually stock feed. And the reason for that is we could grow a thousand hectares of industrial hemp with the aim of it feeding it to livestock. And the customer, if you like, the livestock is literally on the other side of the fence right next door. So there's no transport cost involved. You don't grow more food than you have livestock. So you never oversupply your own market. And then if someone comes along and says, we'd like some grain, we'd like some seed to plant, or we'd like some fibre, you've got a thousand hectares or whatever your chosen area is. 
and you can just set aside a portion of that to fill the order that the customers put in with you. And so you don't have this issue where you're oversupplying any markets. Whereas if you just set out to grow fibre, it seems to me that it's the egg and the chicken scenario. Do you grow a massive big pile of fibre and then hope someone comes along with a fibre processing operation and takes it on? Or do you build the fibre processing operation and hope that someone grows enough hemp to keep it going? And if you have stock feed as an option that alleviates that in-between pain, growing pains, I call it, until you sort of both grow into each other's operations. Yeah. As a stock feed, how does it rate to other stock feeds that might be available there? To be perfectly honest, I haven't got any data on it, but I can tell you there's a lady in Western Australia that she's actually doing a stock feed trial now, and they're also making pellets containing hemp, and they're doing a stock feed trial at a uni in New South Wales as well. But I'm told that it compares about on par with oats. I mean, I've heard stories about it. Oh, it's the same as soybeans for protein and and all that sort of thing. So look, to be perfectly honest, I haven't seen a stock feed test on it yet. It will take a while to establish exactly what this plant's capable of as far as stock feed values go. As you can imagine, you need to get an average over a few years in a few different regions and a few varieties. And there'll be some varieties that'll be better for stock feed than others. But by all indications, it certainly looks favourable at this stage as a high quality feed, both in protein and energy. So that's what sort of makes me think there's a good avenue for that there. It's very sensible not to rush in, obviously, but it does sound like you're a a little way away from actually planting that first crop. Uh, Yeah, look, there's a few limitations too. So the stock feeds actually, it's not legal. So obviously they've sought an exemption to do the stock feed trial. So I've got to sort of mention that before we sort of say, well, why aren't we feeding it to stock? It's not actually legal yet to do that. And, And the other challenge is, I'm not convinced that it's going to be a wet season rain-fed crop. I think from what I've seen so far and looking at variety data and, and climate data, that it's probably going to be more suited in the Northern Territory to be grown under irrigation in the dry season. And so that's another challenge for me, obviously, not owning any land, just leasing land. I'm going to need to find somewhere with some suitable irrigation and some longevity in the lease to develop some infrastructure if, if I need to do that. So yeah, there is still a little ways to go there, but we'll just keep chipping away and I'm sure we'll get there before too long. The other challenge, I suppose, from what I've heard, and I'd be interested to hear somebody who's very familiar with particularly heavy machinery, the other challenge I've heard is that it can be quite difficult to cut in terms of harvest. Have you given any thought to that? Wake up in a cold sweat thinking about it, to be honest. There <laughs> I haven't actually harvested any yet, obviously, but I've seen some videos of people harvesting it and I've actually spoken to a a guy in northern New South Wales that has harvested quite a bit of grain and he said it's kind of like just getting a big roll of telecom rope and throwing it in the front of your header. So, yeah, obviously being a fibre, being a plant that's known for its fibre content, you're dealing with something that is basically a big, strong rope and... From my understanding, the technique is more or less just like harvesting any other crop. With your header, you just come along and take the seed heads off the top and when they sort of feed through and separate, you need to go really slowly and you need a fairly powerful machine because you're trying to feed this really strong fibre through. 
The other thing that I've been told is that it coats your entire machine with resin. Again, it's just like a sticky, gooey, resiny sort of mess. And it, as I said, having not experienced it firsthand, I'm not sure, but I'm sure that all your knives on your header front would get glued up. And I can imagine the post-season clean-out is going to be an interesting one. You're painting a fantastic picture there, Mick. <laughs> oh, it's if it was easy, everyone would do it. The thing that makes it hard is the knowledge gap. Once you know how to do it, you know, again, you can't just go to your local machinery dealer and say, I'm doing hemp, what have you got? Just perfectly suited to this product. But there is guys in the States developing stuff and it's available commercially. Now they sort of take conventional headers and I've seen one picture of a header that had two combs on the front. So it's got one up really high and you nearly have to look underneath the top comb And then there's a comb or a cutter bar right down low. So the top one takes the grain and then down the bottom it cuts the fibre and spits it through a decorticator underneath and runs it through as a separate. It's kind of like two machines. It's a bit like a windrower or a swather on the bottom half and a header on the top half. And they've sort of joined all these bits together and they've done a pretty neat job. It looks really good. There is stuff like that you can just grab off the shelf. You just need a cool million bucks and then probably God knows what in import duties and shipping costs. That sounds like it's for an operation where you're taking both the seed and the fibre, but I've noticed that some people are just using like hay cutting machinery just for the fibre. Do you have intentions to harvest both the fibre and the seed? Uh, Yeah, I do. The model I'm leaning towards now after all my research is for stock feed as a forage crop and then if a fibre market develops or a seed market, you know, you get an order for seed, then you can just quickly adapt and adjust and change and to suit. That's what appeals to me is that you've always got a market for whatever it is you're picking on. But the challenge with the grain or the seed market is it's, again, it's the egg and the chicken. The market sort of grows to a certain size and then you need to increase your production. Then the production increases usually higher than the than the market and then you've got this leftover grain at the end of the season and they need to sort of develop the market more to take on the extra grain and then as I said it just grows sort of slowly one at a time and the same with the fiber I guess the challenge with fiber here in the Northern Territory is going to be freight yep and probably the answer for us up here is talking to the guys in Tassie and other parts of Australia that are already doing it finding out what they're doing what's working what's not working and just seeing how we can slot in with that. I don't think you can take the fibre to the processor. I think you'll find the, the processing will need to be done just down the road from the fibre. Yeah. Mick, you know, it's really fascinating talking to you because you are a pioneer in this area in first off growing a crop that's normally a cooler climate crop in the hot top end. All those associated issues that you've talked about and How you're thinking through them is a real lesson for people, I think, in not just rushing into things, not that farmers do that, but going through a process and eliminating the problems and coming up with solutions. It's been fascinating talking to you and I really hope that we get the chance to talk again just to see how far you get down this road. Told you he was impressive and I think everyone hearing him talk would be in his corner. Mick Jacoby is his name, talking to me from Darwin in the Northern Territory. And shortly after that conversation, Mick was getting himself ready for the Northern Australia Food Futures Conference, which is on this week in Darwin. 
And by the way, AgriFutures Australia has also selected Mick for a place on an online company directors course starting in May and run by the Australian Institute of Company Directors, where he'll be given the skills he needs to sit on company boards of directors. Hey, thanks for listening today. My name is Chris Brown. You've been listening to AgriFutures On Air, a weekly podcast brought to you by AgriFutures Australia. Australia.